Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Want to witness the world's biggest football game? Head to iCanWin.com.au, predict Australia's score with a crystal ball, and it could be you and a friend at the FIFA World Cup Qatar 2022 semifinals, all thanks to McDonald's. Maccas, together and loving it. TNCs apply. Want to witness the world's biggest football game? Head to iCanWin.com.au, predict Australia's score with a crystal ball, and it could be you and a friend at the FIFA World Cup Qatar 2022 semifinals, all thanks to McDonald's. Maccas, together and loving it. TNCs apply. In one agonising moment, half of these people will be plunged into despair, and the other half into ecstasy. Frenzied rush, a fateful mark, and one deadly kick brings a surge of naked emotion. For 100 years, the fans have worshipped such high drama. Millions of them, bonded together by the fortunes of their teams. Though they may be as different as paupers, priests and poets. The passion for Australian football, sired last century on the playing fields of Melbourne, has bred a national obsession, making some men heroes, some villains, and some who are both. Oh, it's one of the great spine-tingling intros to a documentary, isn't it? This year marks 25 years since the AFL celebrated its centenary year from when the Victorian Football League was first formed. And as part of the celebrations, the AFL commissioned a documentary titled 100 Years of Australian Football to be produced and released. And you know a documentary, I think, is successful when scenes are mimicked and lines are quoted from fans a quarter of a century later. David Barham was the executive producer of the documentary and is a well-respected figure in the media industry. And I'm pleased to say that he joins us on the line. Thanks for joining us, David, on the anniversary of the anniversary celebration, so to speak. <laughs> Thanks, Damien. Yeah, it seems like a while ago now. I was going to say, can you believe it's been 25 years? <laughs> no, it's, it's gone quick, that's for sure. It's gone really quick. When you were asked by the AFL that you had the responsibility to produce this documentary, what was your first reaction and who actually asked you? Uh, so Ross Oakley was running the league and Gary Fenton was running Channel 7 and they ran a bit of a bit of a tender process, I suppose, and there was a few of us um, said we wanted to do it. and But in the end, I was very lucky because Gary and Ross uh, said to me they wanted me to make it. So, um, 
Yeah, I was really thrilled. I was running AFL. I sort of just started running my business, AFL Films, which is now AFL Media. So I'd probably been doing that for five years and had got to know them both a bit. And um, yeah, I had about a year and a half to make it. So I was really thrilled when I got the chance to do it. So you had a year and a half effectively to make it. Did that involve basically getting cameramen out on the ground? Because you've often, if you see the documentary, uh, you had basically cameramen positioned at certain games. I reckon in the year or so prior, like in that intro, it was the 1994 preliminary final. It's a great shot of Gary Ablett taking that famous one-hander two seconds before the siren. Yeah, amazing. I was there that day. Well, I'd sort of been filming stuff at the footy for the AFL for a while, so I sort of had enough. I had some, a lot of material, but I, I was, remember being there that day when um, Gary took that mark because we'd filmed all day and we got nothing and we were standing in the middle of the ground and the guy said, Cameron said to me, where do you want to go? I said, oh, we'll just, Ablett had not had a kick all day and we went down to his end and we stood in the forward pocket and sure enough, um, he took the mark to kick the kick the goal after the siren against Mickey Martin, which I'll never forget. But um, yeah, so we had a lot of material and... And then we put a call, one of the things we did is we put a call out to everybody um, that if they had material to send it in through the footy record and um, some amazing things turned up after we did that. Well, that's right, because historical footage prior to, I reckon, the mid-1980s is difficult to come by because TV networks used to tape over programs to save money and not retain any footage. Was that a big obstacle you faced? Yeah, and that's why. So I started the AFL library in uh, about 1991 or 1992, and that was what... I uh, I figured out was that um, you know we um, they were taping over all the games and I couldn't believe it. So <laughs> I remember I went to Ross and I said, Ross, we need to start a library. And he said, Okay, how much? I think they paid me thirty thousand dollars to build the library. And all I did was build a big room and fireproof it. And then we started keeping tapes of games and logging them and stuff like that. And um, it's funny because I remember going to World over to um, Channel 7 when we were doing the 100 Years doco and saying to Channel 7, where's all your world of sport? Yeah. And someone picked up a two-hour tape and said, here it is. <laughs> and the whole, and the, whole of, the whole of world of sport was kept on two hours of tape. And there must have been hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours of world of sport. Well, that's 28 years worth. I think that show ran for 28 years and it was all condensed yeah, for two hours. Yeah. Quite amazing, isn't well, it? Well, that's what they had, two hours of it. And I remember going, this is amazing. And it was one of the reasons we um, built the library and built the archive for the AFL because it just, you just needed to keep it. Because you didn't know what, what was going to be valuable in 30 or 40 years' time. We're speaking with David Barham here on SEN, who produced the famous 100 Years of Australian Football documentary 25 years ago, that was. Uh, is it true also that you had your own collection of footage? Were you someone who liked to archive various bits of footage for posterity? No, but I had been producing the AFL's International Highlight Show, so I had a little bit of stuff. But no, I pretty much I started collecting, like really working on behalf of the AFL um, in probably early 90s and that's when I started really looking for everything and finding everything keeping everything and and it really just built into what is now AFL media but um, yeah that was a really great experience and I'm glad we did it now because that's where that's where all these memories live in that library you know if you want to see the 1990 Collingwood Premiership that Tony Shaw lives in that library that's where it is that's right if you could produce a documentary again would you have done anything differently now that you think back 25 years on uh, no, not really. No, I don't think so. Um, things have changed a bit in terms of what you produce and how you produce it and how you deliver it. But no, we found, look, we had some amazing experiences. There were some great moments in it. Like the John, I'll never forget, there's a few really funny things and amazing things happened, but the John Kennedy tapes were quite amazing. Uh, 
we, were, we sent this call out to say if anyone had any material they thought would be good for this documentary, could they get in contact? And a guy rang me up and said, oh, I've got, I did all this filming in the mid-70s with Ron Barassi and Tom Hafey and John Kennedy and mm. I filmed them all at three quarter time and I went, sure. And he said, no, I have, I've got it in my shed down in Brighton. And I said to I said to my uh, guys working with me, Barn, I said, Barn, go down to this guy's house and see if he can come back. This, this guy says he's got all this material anyway. Barney went down there and there was 40 cans of film <laughs> in this guy's shed and they'd been sitting there for 20 years and they were rusted and from, anyway... We took them to a film place and we sat there and we started spooling through, spooling through all these reels of um, film. And it took a day and a half with a friend of mine, Greg Smith, and um, we kept going with 39th can. All of a sudden it flickered, flickered, and up, up, up popped John Kennedy saying, do something, do something. And um, we were sitting there amazed going, this is amazing. And then I saw John Kennedy um, over at the AFL and I said, oh, John, I said, I found this material. Have you, you know, saying, do something, Mick? And he said... Um, no, no, it wouldn't be me, David. I said, well, think it, is, think it is, John. He goes, no, 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 it wouldn't be me. He says, you know me, I wouldn't do that. And I said, well, you better come over to my office have a look. So he came over and he sat there and I put it on and he sat there for 15 minutes with his head in his hands and he, he didn't speak or say anything, I thought, because the tapes go about 30 minutes. And uh, <laughs> and he just sat there and eventually he said, yep, that is me. He said, I can't remember doing that. I don't believe I did that, but it was him. So... We found that material, which was, you know, really exciting at the time. That sort of stuff turns up. And, um, you know, John must have forgotten he was doing it. It's also where um, Kevin Sheedy, where Tommy Hafey said, Kevin Sheedy, you're a back pocket plumber. And um, there's a bit of um, Ron Barassi there as well. So it was just great. But it's also great because you capture these guys in their moment, and that's what it is. And it's also, it's, sometimes it's even better if it comes up 20 years later than it happening the day after, if you know what I mean. Mm, that's right. It does give it uh, probably a little more grace in a way in the sense that you sit on it for a long period of time and it's a great revelation. We're speaking with David Barham. Uh, I'm in my mid-20s and for my generation, it's easy to access archival footage. There's plenty of content on YouTube and the AFL website, etc. But 25 years ago, it was a treat to gain any form of nostalgia. Is that why you felt the documentary carried greater importance for posterity? Uh, Yeah, I think so. And I think probably it was... I can't remember too many big things being done on the AFL before that. Like, there's been a lot of documentaries made since, but that was sort of probably the first big one where we tried to pull together. And it went, I think it went about two and a half, three hours or something. But the first, it's funny because the first cut of it went about four hours. And we had to go and cut out about an hour of it or an hour and a bit because Channel 7 only wanted um, two and a half hours, I think, for TV. So... I remember them saying to me, you've got to cut an hour out. And I remember we took out, you'll notice Jimmy, the Jimmy Stein story is not in there, and um, mm. which is amazing now. And I often thought about that, that Jimmy's story is not in there because he sort of didn't make the cut. But that was uh, we had so much material and so much good material that, you know, it's a shame now it would have gone out on all sorts of different releases and there would have been a long version and a short version and a digital version and a whatever. But at the time, it was just a two-and-a-half-hour version for Channel 7. So we um, we made some cuts and took some stuff out. But, but Jimmy was one of those things that didn't make the cut, which was sort of said how much great stuff was in there, I think. Well, I was going to ask you about that because you worked alongside Neil Kearney, I think, in producing the documentary. Neil yeah. Kearney was a writer yeah. from memory. Yeah. Yeah, no, Neil deserves probably more of the credit than anyone for the documentary. Neil was the genius writer and um, constructed it, and so I suppose my role was... So we both worked on it, and we both sort of did a bit of everything, but I was really pulling it all together, making it happen, and Neil was the one who 
creatively was able to you know piece it together and um, write the beautiful lines that you heard before. You know, Niels was a real creative genius behind. He did a lot of the interviews, pretty all interviews probably, apart from the ones that we had in the archive. And so between us, we had all of the skills and all of the things we needed to do. But uh, Neil was a massive part of it. And I think you saw some interviews that Mike Williamson conducted back in the 80s. Yeah. Is that correct? Yeah. yeah, we did. So there was um, Mike Williamson did a whole heap that were in the AFL archive. Um, it's funny, they weren't shot very well. So unfortunately, not a lot of them saw the light of day. But there were some with people who had um, passed away. So Richmond. we were able to use those. Yeah, there were some there that we used. Uh, bits and pieces of but um, yeah but they were all still they were there and we, we reshot a lot but where, where we couldn't we would use because um, we did this technique where we cut them out and put them on a background and it was a bit we shot them a lot of them on green screen at the time and we couldn't do that with mics so we had to change what we did a bit but yeah there was a bit of that stuff there and there's a lot of old stuff you know a lot of a lot of old stuff turned up and yeah and that was and then, and then we went and filmed all the things I remember filming um Sheedy and uh, David Parkin playing chess. Yes. Uh, for the and I'll never forget because it was a funny story because they they'd been um, had that pretty pretty strong rivalry between the two of them for all that through the early nineties and ninety three grand final and whatever and they weren't like they weren't enemies or anything like that but they weren't getting on like a house on fire that's for sure so I asked them both to come and sit and have this game of chess and pretend they're making moves and doing things and I wanted them to look meaningful, meaningfully at each other and that wasn't hard because they were looking pretty meaningfully at each other without me even asking And but I'll never forget we painted all of the um, black ones the black pieces with a red stripe and we put the blue uh, painted the white ones blue and left the white dots so they had them in their team colours and I remember Shady looking down at the board and we, along the way we'd lost one of the Essendon um, pawns uh, before the thing, so he looked down at the board, and he leaned over, and you could see he was one short. So he leaned over and picked up one of Parkins' pawns, and he threw it on the ground. He said, "I'm not starting one short." <laughs> <laughs> and but neither of them, neither of them knew how to play, and they moved all these pieces in all the wrong ways. And one of the funniest things at the end of it was we didn't get many complaints about the doco, but I got about three letters from people who played chess saying that was a fake game of chess. And they didn't know what they were doing. <laughs> That's absolutely brilliant. We're speaking with David Barham here on SCN who produced the famous 100 Years of Australian Football documentary. The Peter Crimmins audio, where was that source from? Was that a voluntary distribution? No, that was that was the Peter Crimmins stuff come out of the Kennedy speeches. Right, okay. That we found in the guy's shed. And, uh, yeah, he, he, he talked. That was three, it was a three-quarter time speech in the 1975 grand final, I think it was. And he talked. he talked about not picking Peter Crimmins and, and um, yeah, no, he was, he was really emotional about all that. And um, John was really emotional even when he heard it and, and saw and when he saw it and replayed it to him, he was quite emotional about it. And John wasn't the emotional type, but you could see it affected him. So, um, yeah, no, that, that stuff is, um, and there was about 30 minutes of that. Quite remarkable, isn't it? We're speaking with David Barham. The Dermot Brereton slow motion footage, you speak of people mimicking certain bits mm. of vision. People still mimic that to this day with the inspirational music after he was crunched by Mark Yates at the start of the 89 grand final and he moved down to the four pocket, which set the tone in the early part of the documentary as well. Who was behind that move and I guess the music behind it as well? Uh, we had a guy called Frank Strangio. He wrote all the music, so we, we made it, and then he wrote all the music to the pictures, which was fantastic, and that was a great experience. But that was another 
amazing thing. We went over to Channel 7, Gordon Bennett and um, Gary Fenton said, come over and have a look at everything we've got. And so, and it was funny because TV stations do live hand to mouth and you're sort of doing things on the run, and, you know, and what had happened is they'd shot all this material in that um, grand final. Uh, a guy called John Bowring, who's a famous film cameraman, shot it all. And it was another tape was sitting on the shelf and we pulled the tape off the shelf and put it on and gone, what's this? And no one had ever seen it before. And it was the Dermot slow-mo of him getting crunched and getting up and um, doing all that. And we just sat there going, how amazing is this? And so there were quite some, there were some really um, big things found um, at the time. And that was, I remember them finding that and going, this is amazing. You know, that and the Kennedy speeches, we were just gobsmacked at things that turned up. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I like the selection of Graham Dow, I think, as the narrator, who was an actor in the yep, film Gallipoli. Yep. Was he the first yep. choice? And how did you go about selecting the narrator as well? No, Neil did that. Neil did that. Neil, 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 Neil um, checked out a lot of voiceover guys and checked it out. Because he was writing it, he knew how he wanted it to sound. So Neil, um, Neil was the one who found Graham Dow, and he was fantastic, and that was a really great choice. So Graham did that, and I know um, Frank wrote the music, which was fantastic, and uh, a guy called Dean Shield was the editor, and he spent, oh, I reckon Dino spent probably four months, five months editing. It was a long job. It was a big, big, long um, edit that took forever. But, um, yeah, it was, it was 18 months, I reckon, doing it. and uh, But it was great fun in the end. Yeah, it's some memorable interviews throughout that documentary. I guess one topical one to focus on is Dr. Jeffrey Edelston, who recently passed away, and he mm. formed part of that documentary in regards to the story of private, you know, the private ownership of the Sydney Swans back in the mid nineteen eighties. Is there a memorable interview when you look back at, for that specific documentary that you did face to face, or that Neil conducted face to face, that that comes to mind for you? Oh, uh, I think the one, uh, the one that strikes me was Jack Dyer. And Neil, um, Neil um, loved Jack Dyer, and Neil's a closet Richmond supporter. He never comes out of the closet. <laughs> he's a closet Richmond supporter, and he should be out by now. But he, uh, he, um, he loved Jack Dyer, and he got Jack walking through, he walking through the streets of Richmond with his old Gladstone bag, and uh, then he sat in the stand, in the old Richmond stand, interviewed Jack, and that was a pretty, um, that was a pretty amazing interview. And it was just because Jack was such a legendary figure, and it was great to get him and. Um, uh, you know, be able to um, get him on camera and get it all done, and get him to tell his stories and stuff. So um, I think that that to me, when we have, you know, that, I remember looking at that gun. This is fantastic, and and I remember Neil did another great thing. He got a lot of the legends down to Punt Road and got them to look at training, and you pan through the crowd, and yes. I think it was Bobby Skilton and Alex Jeselenko and. He just rounded up a whole of old legendary players, and they stood there watching training down at. Um, Punt Road, and that was just another amazing um, thing that he did along the way. So there's some great, great moments in it. Absolutely. Up to 1996, as you mentioned before, David, there weren't too many documentaries in any capacity in the VFL slash AFL. We've seen the popularity of the recent documentary on uh, Amazon Prime and Amazon Plus. We know about the abundance of documentaries that arise from US sport as well, and even in the UK. Do you think we'll see more documentaries relating to the AFL or is the financial market and demand different here in Australia? Because they can be costly exercises, as you know. Well, actually, uh, Neil and I are doing another one at the minute, actually. But uh, we're actually nearly finished. Um, So um, I'm on the board of Essendon and um, a year and a half ago, we started making the Essendon 150 years old next year. So... 
we started making the 150-year history of the Essendon Footy Club. And uh, we interviewed, Neil, Neil interviewed 100 people. We've interviewed over 100 people um, over the last uh, 18 months, two years. He's done them all. And it's about four and a half hours worth of content. Um, so it's a massive undertaking, but it's turning out really well. So that that's something that we'll do at Essendon in the next um, six months for our 150th anniversary. For all our all, all my fans are going to love it because it goes back through Coleman and Reynolds and the TV era of everything. And there's about four half hour episodes on the city era and stuff. So that's really good. So there's plenty of um, there are a lot of docos being made now behind the scenes, fly on the wall things. So um, I think there'll be plenty of AFL ones done, but. It's interesting the Amazon ones are great because that goes to a world audience, but there's there's no doubt probably um, AFL suffers and NRL suffers probably because we are a domestic sport mm. uh, rather than a worldwide sport and where you can go and do a documentary on a... Um, if you did a documentary on Ronaldo, mm. well, you know, how, what's what's your potential audience? It's in the hundreds of billions, you know. What's, you, know you go and do a documentary on... Uh, you know, someone in the AFL, you're sort of a bit limited. So it does come down to scale and things like that. But, you know, it's still pretty popular in this country and, you know, um, we all love our footy. So I think there'll be plenty of docos made. Were you always a history buff, David? Did you ever foresee yourself, you know, as a youngster producing and, and directing documentaries? No, not really. Um, I, but what I... What I um, so what happened to me really was I um, I started producing the AFL's International Highlight Show and I love my footy and I've always sort of been involved, been involved in Essendon probably on and off all my life from, from mid-80s all the way through with Sheeds and everything. And But I just, what I realised very early was that we didn't have any, uh, we weren't collecting and keeping our history and it's really important. It's really, really important um, because even like what we're doing now at Essendon, you want people in 100 years to be able to listen to Kevin Sheedy, listen to James Hurd, listen to Neil Danaher and understand who they are and what they did. Mm. And that is really important. And that's why the 100 Years of Footy documentary is so important because, you know, even in 100 years' time, through those John Kennedy speeches, you'll be able to get a feel for John Kennedy. You, you, it won't just be a legendary name, you know. We all think now, see... One of the interesting things was when we started making the 100 years, everybody said, oh, John Coleman could jump straight up. He could jump straight up. It must, I don't know how many people told us, but it's no vision of John Coleman standing there and jumping straight up. So I remember thinking at the time, you know, I, like, I kept everything of Gary Ablett Sr. in that AFL library. Yeah. Every time he played, everything's there. Everything you wanted to see of Gary Ablett Sr. is in that library. Um, so when they make 200 years of... Australian football, you will be able to see all these great players and characters in full flight. Whereas when we made the 100 years of football, we really only went back to the 80s, 70s maybe, with any sort of great detail. So my that's what's really sparked my um, enthusiasm for it and my interest in it is that I realised how worthwhile it was when I started. And so I've always been um, everywhere I've gone. I've really been... Um, I don't know, um, I have a great desire to protect the history because if you don't know where you've come from, it's hard to get anywhere else. And I think sporting organisations have got an obligation to do that. And um, Yeah, so that's what sparked me. Absolutely, and posterity is very, very important. Appreciate your time, uh, obviously, David, tonight. Just a few more before I let you go. You speak about 
significant moments in the history of the game. Uh, this year actually marks 20 years, another anniversary since another significant moment in the history of the game. And that's on the air with uh, the changeover of the rights. Uh, that was announced in 2001 ahead of 2002. And TV rights has been in the discussion again with the A-League in recent weeks. Uh, yep. There were subtle changes in regards to the, I guess, the alteration from Channel 7, which held the rights for 45 years. And you were a key figure in that because weren't you the executive producer for Channel 7 in its last year and then you moved over to Channel 10 uh, in its first year uh, as the, as the yeah, executive producer? No, no, I was, yeah. So I was executive producer of Talking Footy and I was executive producer of Friday Night Footy in 2000. And then, yeah, and then I did the grand final in 2000 for Channel 7. And then at the end of the 2001 season, Channel 10 took it over. So... Yeah, I moved over as an executive producer for Tens Footy in two thousand and two. I think we started, but um, yeah, it was a big. It was a big. Um, it was big at the time because to move um, when one. I think Channel Seven had done it for thirty nine years. I think it was. So it was a very big decision by the AFL, and then there was a lot of responsibility on Channel Ten because we had all the final series and five first five grand finals. So um, I remember it being pressure packed. I remember that. Yeah, and the subtle changes that I mentioned, even having modern music to come out of the commercial breaks, uh, that hadn't been yeah. really done before because effectively Channel 7 used to have their theme and that would be the only yep. music you would hear in and out of breaks. Was that your brainchild as well, just to change up the coverage yeah. a little bit? Yeah, oh, look, oh, yeah. everyone who comes in has their own set of ideas, so I had all my ideas on the things that I thought we should do and, you know, my probably the one I get... I, I copped a lot for and was good and bad was the five minute warning. I remember I changed the clock to count up, not count down. And I, I preferred footy where we didn't know when the siren was going to go. So I changed that. And everyone from Robert Walls was bagging me about that on my own team. So um, <laughs> 50% of people loved it and 50 hated it, 50% hated it, I think. But yeah, everyone who comes in brings their own ideas. And that's a good thing. And, and also what happened then, which was great for footy, was channel, channel we had... Channel 10 had Saturday afternoon, Saturday night and all the finals and grand finals and Channel 9 had Friday nights and Sunday afternoon. So I remember Coscut Home was working at Channel 9 and we were competing all the time, like in, in a really friendly rivalry. It wasn't nasty or anything like that, but he'd try something, I'd try something, he'd try something, I'd try something. So the game, I think, progressed a lot in those um, five years. And then the next five years, it was 10 versus 7. And again, we competed really hard with them in terms of commentators and the way we did things. And the game actually progresses a lot when you get change. So, you know, like the, the, the behind ground, there wasn't a lot of behind goal cameras till late 2000s or mate, late 90s. Yeah. People wouldn't remember now, but game was pretty much shot from the side. Yeah. It was only in the late 90s and early 2000s when we said start shoot the game up and down the ground, which is now yeah, such part of the game. So. Yeah, and cameras and goalposts, things like that, that happened because there was um, change of broadcaster. Just last two questions before I let you go. Just ahead to the future, do you think we've currently reached a tipping point for the amount TV networks will pay for the rights to televise sport? Uh, it's hard to know because it changes all the time, but um, I think I think there'll still always be really good money, but I think it'll be shown in different places. So the anti siphoning laws... Um, in Australia give the free-to-airs a really good chance of keeping major sport, but I think that's being, that'll be reviewed even more stringently in the next few years. And you've got 
all these different streaming people coming in now wanting to do things like the 10 deal with the soccer you know a lot of that's been is on paramount plus so you're going to have you're probably still going to have good money for sporting rights but what's going to be incumbent upon sporting bodies is to make sure that most people can see it and that's that's going to be the that's the major there's a couple of major things you've got to do i think as a sporting body you've got to make sure you are getting your product to as many people as possible it's not just about money so you have to make sure that you know, you know you're giving everybody the best possible chance to see your product uh, in the best possible way so but it is changing you know smart tvs we're all sitting at home now and you know looking at apps and i watch all my nfl on an app um you know there's lots of different ways to see things now so I think it'll always be popular because it's still the best live drama sport is by a long way. Yeah, that's right. And it is important to bring it to the masses via free-to-wear in many ways in Australia because you don't want it to be a situation similar to England, for instance, where a lot of sport is behind a paywall effectively. And I guess that is a nice segue into my last question. Do you think it is conceivable to think that maybe in 10 years' time the rights to televised sports such as footy and cricket will move away from TV networks and be held exclusively by streaming platforms? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. But there will always be... There will still, I think, you will you always still have look tv is going to change some it's changed so much in the last five years um who would have thought that we're all home watching netflix and not watching a free-to-air tv program um so what do our tvs look like in five years maybe we've all got these smart tvs where you know there is no such difference there's no difference between a free-to-air there's no difference between free-to-air and netflix Maybe they're the same thing and you've just got a controller in your house and you click on your box and you decide what you're going to watch. Now, if that's the case, you know, that just changes the whole TV rights landscape because there is no such thing as free-to-air. And if there's, then that, if there's no, no anti-siphoning rules, um, then that's maybe where we'll end up. So it's, um, and this is where the great conundrum comes for sports is how much money do you need to pay your players, run your yeah. sport? Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. What do all that and how much do you need? you free to wear exposure or your exposure on TV? And that's a great challenge particularly for Australian sports, because as you said before, they don't have the same reach as the globalised sports such as the yep. NBA or the EPL. Hey, David, really appreciate your time. Thanks for going down memory lane in terms of revisiting the 100 years of Australian football documentary. It was one of my favourites as a, as a child, and it is for many, many people of my generation as well as a, a great historical viewpoint in regards to the game's history. All the best for the future, and thanks again for your time. G'day, Mike Hussey here, but you can call me Mr. Supercoach. KFC Supercoach BBL is back and there's 25 grand up for grabs. So what are you waiting for? Play today at supercoach.com.au. T's and C's apply. New South Wales authorisation number TP slash 01005. No worries. Sometimes needing new tyres can catch us by surprise. That's why tyre power gives you the power of zip pay and zip money. You can get what you need now, get back on the road safely and pay for it later. Terms and conditions apply. So visit tyrepower.com.au or call 13 91.